0: Hi, welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with... Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today, we're going to be talking about a good old man. Well, I hope that's not disrespectful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a good man, Richard Hooker. In Richard theology. Hooker. Now, well, Richard Hooker was existing around the 1500s, when you see a lot of crazy things happening that I guess we'll eventually get into.
1: Well, he... Yeah, is. I mean, Richard lives... Um, his life is essentially, you know, a little bit longer, but it's uh, basically the reign of Queen Elizabeth, you know, 1554 to 1600. So he's got a little bit of uh, time before her reign, you know, but, uh, you know, he does not live to be an old man by any stretch. Even in his day, he wouldn't have been considered aged, really. But uh, no, he, he gets to live, at, 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 you know, in the height or the, like uh, one of the, not height, but you could say like the stabilized era, as stable as you're gonna get between you know Henry VIII and then 1662. So he he's in that era right there. And uh, well, he wrote a
0: he wrote a book, he's, a book. Oh, well, oh, he's uh, he book, a, a book of books. Book of books.
1: He, he wrote yeah he wrote a lot of books. The guy was super intelligent. But he's best known right now for his, his, he wrote on justification, but best known right now for his books on ecclesiastical laws and politics and whatnot, where he really crafts and articulates, you know, distinctives of the Reformation as it's kind of matured. And, um, you know, had some time, I don't want to say to cool, but some of those fresh ideas that they were just kind of hammering out in the middle 1500s he kind of starts to smooth into articulate ways that is a more fuller developed thought that the reformers had that you know they were beginning to have but he does it by being contiguous he's staying in touch with the patristic sources and the the emphasis of medieval understanding as well you know because he's he's a huge advocate of natural theology and the champion of that in christian history has been thomas aquinas so he's not rejecting um, you know, epochs in Christian history, he's really doing a profound job of summing up Christian doctrine. Um, so much so that I, I don't remember the exact quote, but the Pope of the of his era, one of the Popes in his era, was presented a copy of his laws and liked it. You know, that's not to say he was Roman. He was not by any stretch of the mean a Roman. No, he was not. Yeah, he uh, was not a Roman Catholic. But I'm, I'm saying that just to point out that there was a, a an awareness of the scope of what he did and how it resonated with so many different people just being that, that comprehensive, being that good. And uh, I think it's cool because
0: I've been, I've been trying to read some <laughs> Thomas Aquinas. And uh, I mean, I've read some of his stuff before, but now I've been going more to, which kind of relates to this, where it's, he starts to break down the different laws and definitely, yeah, he builds up upon um, what Aquinas was setting up already. And that big brain, you know, so building up upon that with mm-hmm. another big brain, yeah, so it's pretty cool. Also, to mention, when you want to go and read some of uh, Hooker's works, well, it, it's going to be a little complicated. He's yes, very. Yes. Why
1: yeah, how do you say that? We, we <laughs> would recommend that no one, unless you are like some our dear friend Arthur, who has you know a very proficient and profound understanding of this era of of English, most people that are want reading that will want to read Richard Hooker should not probably pick up a copy of his text, because you're... I'll put it this way. Most people have difficulty with the King James Bible. I know that's a shock, but a lot of modern (laughs) readers have difficulty with the King James Bible. You're not... If that's difficult for you, do not try to read Richard Hooker in his natural setting. Uh, You want to go for one of the modernizations, and there's been a couple Recently, there's been a modernization that has come out in small chunks, like small books. You can get them on Amazon for just a few dollars. Excellent. You can read most of them within like 45 minutes to an hour and a half. You can read them pretty fast. And they're, they're wonderful updates of, of his thought. And they're, they're worth the time. They're worth the time.
2: I'll put it to you this way. Um, I found a free PDF version of his original work. Spent 30 seconds on that wasted those 30 seconds because I understood nothing. <laughs> because it is like massive sentences, got the modernization, was cruising through it and understand the content. Right. Um, and I, m- I make a habit of reading from that t- form of literature as well. So if you want to feel some pain, then yeah, of course, read this original work.
1: Well, but you, right. Because for, for most contemporary modern people, for the folks that really enjoy the kind of prose. Struggling. Yeah. Well, pain. I mean, it, it is a, it is, it is, it is, it's really good. I mean, it's, you know, uh, I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said that, you know, Richard Hooker's English is some of the best you're going to find. But most English speaking Americans, I, I don't even want to, do we call it English anymore? Some kind of American subset of English or something? Most most of us that use English in our regular yeah. speech <laughs> do not speak or think in the kind of English that Richard Hooker is writing in,
2: his English is so good it's hard to read. That's when you know it's good. If people <laughs> yeah. can't understand it <laughs> and it's proper, like good grammar, that's when you know. Well, that's good English.
1: <laughs> so you know, not to spend too you know so many minutes on that, but just yeah. to kind of say, we, we would recommend the modern modernizations that you can get.
0: Um, yeah, definitely Hooker, and like we were saying before, he kind of builds upon like the different types of uh, like seven forms of law. That are existing there. But like, and again, if you read Aquinas Aquinas, and then you read this, it's like, okay, you can see the connection to it, even though Aquinas is kind of an interesting read. I'll say it. I'll, I'll put it like that. But what we're going to be talking about today more is the fact of
1: the, the yeah, three stool. Yeah, his, me- his method. His, yeah, his, his method. methodology. You know, I think one of the biggest blessings for anybody who is taking their understanding of the Lord seriously and their walk with Christ seriously is to ask themselves questions like this. How do I think? What are, what are the presuppositions that I have that cause me to see the world the way that I do? And then when you think about that theologically, why do I process what I do the way that I do? What is the method and praxis of your theology? You know, so you, you have to take a step back for a second. It's like uh, somebody that wears glasses. You know, take your glasses off to clean them, and then you can put them back on to see through them. You know, and what, what is the prescription on your glasses, You right? So our worldview are like glasses. All of our worldviews are like this. We have a, like a certain prescription, a certain tint, a certain design for them. And so often we're looking through our glasses, and we think that what we're seeing is really what's there. Well, you're really seeing things that are there, but you're seeing them through a set of lenses. And one of the things that, that Richard Hooker does is he takes a step back. You know, so look at it like this. The scripture is the infallible word of God. I think every Christian is going to agree that it's the word of God. Absolutely. Okay? There'll be theological discussions as to what infallible means, but, you know, it is the word of God. Well, then what? So Richard Hooker, he was dealing with basically two main antagonists. Two, two, two I don't want to use the word opponents, but... Sometimes it was like that. He's dealing with two different groups of people while he's hammering out, his wordsmithing his theology. One of the Puritans, the first group of the Puritans, and the Puritans said that the Bible is the Word of God. Nice. Okay. Now, since the Bible is the Word of God, anything that I do that the Bible doesn't command me to do is sin. So, I cannot celebrate Christmas. I cannot use musical instruments in the church. I cannot have bishops. And as I've said in the past, if you press that to its, to, to its conclusion, you end up with what they started to do. They outlaw Christmas, they kill the king, they kill the archbishop, they get rid of the prayer book. Well, press that a little bit further in some of the early Christian debates, and you end up with the Pneumatomokians. We talked about them, the spirit fighters with Basil, who say, well, there is no statement that says the Holy Spirit is God right? So they don't go that far. They don't, they don't do that at all. But I'm just pointing out that reading of Scripture becomes radically restrictive, the radical Puritans, okay? On the other side is the Roman Catholic Church of the day, the Roman Catholic Church of the day. I know that Rome. some Roman thinkers like to present Roman Catholicism as something that doesn't change, but that's anybody who's lived through Vatican II can tell the difference between when they went to Mass in Latin, And now when they go in English, right? So, uh, Didn't change. Yeah. I want to talk about the Roman Catholicism of the day. And here's what they would have said. The Bible is the word of God. Wait a second. What? Yes. So the Puritan and the Roman both believe that the Bible is the word of God. Here's the difference. One of the main differences. The Puritan says anything that it doesn't tell me I can do that I do is sin. The Roman church says the Bible is the word of God. The church is the infallible authority to interpret it. So whatever the church says you have to do, you have to do. So the, the, the one says there is no authority outside of Scripture, and the other says there is an authority equal to Scripture. One doesn't celebrate Christmas. One celebrates, celebrates Christmas and a bunch of other things that you have to do because they said you have to do them. And I'm, I'm really oversimplifying here, but I'm trying to bring out what Hooker is dealing with. And, and with his, his wit, you know, you're reading through him, and he will often not even entertain the Puritan objections. He doesn't, <laughs> no. he doesn't consider even some of their objections worth re- responding to.
0: <laughs> you're not worth the ink and in the paper. Because, <laughs> because when you go
1: back and you read him, and why is he saying that? Because you guys aren't reading Christian history. Yeah. You're not even being logically consistent. So he, he sets his, his focus on Rome more than he does the radical Puritans, but he rubs shoulders with them more often than he does, too, than the guys he's writing with, because it was illegal. You know, you, Roman Catholics were in hiding in a lot of places in England at the time. So you've, you've got, you got Hooker in the middle. Well, ta-da, he's the guy that gets dubbed for making the, uh, the via media, the middle way. Now, we don't want to attribute that, attribute that to him directly, but he's often you know, lumped mm-hmm. in there as he's writing and articulating what is the teaching of Scripture, and how has the, the Church understood that? And that's what we get in his laws, his books.
0: And I think it's important to see that during this time of Reformation, and of course, that's where I mean Luther would be existing around this time too, right?
1: Luther's already gone. Or
0: he's already gone. He's already gone. So this is like the remnants after, where at least you'll start to see where there's that point and there's that need where we saw there there needs to be a Reformation in the church, and this is kind of that still process
1: of it going on. So Richard Hooker is genuinely like the second generation reformer okay. era. So, I mean, um, all the main all the main early reformers, they, they're either gone or martyred at this point, because the wars are going on, you know. Right. Uh, Luther's gone. Calvin is soon to be gone. Uh, when does Calvin die? I should know this. I can't remember it offhand. I didn't look it up, um, and I don't remember, which is awful, Caleb. I tend to remember these things. Uh, but uh, 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 Calvin, Bucer, Zwingli, I mean, these guys, have all, uh, Cranmer, I mean, they're all phasing out. Uh, definitely by the time he's an adult. The um, Council of Trent has had its first set of meetings. It will meet again to conclude. They meet 1544 through 1546 and then meet again in, in the 1560s. So their first set of meetings are done. I mean, he, he's very much, I don't want to say on the tail end of the Reformation, but as far as the Reformation era it, itself goes, he's not one of the early guys. He's not. Right, okay. So you, what you find him doing is synthesizing the generation that was before him that had to kind of like you know start scrambling the eggs and he says hold on you guys are overcooking some of this you're about to burn these things you're not actually making a good breakfast here yeah uh, let's let's scale back the radical nature of what's happening you know so um and, and you can definitely see that that
2: sometimes i mean hindsight's twenty twenty. yeah you know and he definitely is using a good lens uh to do that, I, th- I think he has a, the right perspective and that it really shows in, um, how he's writing and how he's thinking.
1: Well, his, his, again, to bring up his ecclesiastical laws and the modernization of those, those little books, I think, you know, every Anglican seminarian should read them. I think it should be required reading. People should know his thought. Uh, and I think people in the churches, you could, you could do a, a three week class on Hooker's idea here, and that would help people so much understand just how we think, and how we read the Bible, and how we interpret it. I I mean, I agree,
0: just, I mean, I'm not fully (laughs) well-versed in Hooker's ideologies, but like, at least for the point where like, I can see how this is very relevant for today's day and age, because what you even have with different denominations or different types of uh, ways of practicing Christianity, I'll put it like that. You see where there is that agreement, like, well, at least for the part that is <laughs> yeah. is doing a pretty good job. I think it's like people have that common consensus that scripture is infallible authority, and we do have that in today's, especially in America, we have that idea. Maybe not all, but you know that. Right. That's what I'm saying. Right. But then it's the step afterwards.
1: What do you do with that? Yeah,
0: and right. that's where we're kicking off more the idea of. His three stool, three
1: legs, three, three legs. legs, three legs. Right,
0: not three stool. My goodness, because you can't have a stool with two legs, obviously, or one leg. Well, it won't that's, be very comfortable. That's yeah. for sure. Something at least like when you want to go rest upon it, you know, you can. It, it's not going to fail you. At least, I mean, I think that's kind of a good way to say. It. I don't know. Probably not. No, I mean, but- so yeah. The, the, <laughs> so
1: his. So here's the the imagery that's used, and there's another image that's used, and we'll talk about that one in a minute. Um, to rep- to to depict. Hooker's theology, his method here, and it's a three-legged stool. And what are those three legs? Scripture, tradition, and reason. But he's got a hierarchy amongst them, right? So the Puritan would say there is no tradition, and they would say there is no reason, even though they use it all the time. Okay, radical Puritan. I gotta. Cl- I want to make sure I'm clarifying his radical Puritan side here. Okay, so they're they're. It's not. It's not that they wouldn't believe in traditions, so to speak, but like. Capital T tradition is not something they would feel was authoritative, as probably they would look at some of that as apostate. Okay. Rome, on the other hand, scripture, tradition, and reason, or um, instead of reason, they'd have magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, and they would say they're equal. They're all equally inspired. You can't have one without the other. Well, Hooker comes along and he says, no, wait a second. Pragmatically, it's true, it is a practical truism, Uh, it's very real that you have all three of those things together, you have to. And we've talked about that in the past. Like We wouldn't know what the books of the Scripture are without the tradition of the church. right? right. But it was the Scriptures in the church that created that tradition, not vice versa. right? We wouldn't know what the interpretations of those Scriptures are and, and how to reasonably process what those things mean and how to live them out without tradition of the church. But it doesn't make them equal to the Scripture. The Scripture creates it as the Spirit breathes through the Scriptures that he inspired in the church. So Hooker comes along and he says, no, here's the three of them, but there's a hierarchy. The first is Scripture. Scripture is the infallible authority of God. He inspired it. Absolutely. Tradition is the next authority. And then reason is the third authority. So these are two subsidiary, subsidiary authorities after the Scripture. And we have to appeal to them, and we have to trust that God's been working in them, and they're amenable to Scripture. So if we, this is this is perfect illustration of Reformation. If you find that the church has been believing something or engaged in a practice for, even if it's three hundred years or five hundred years, that doesn't, it's not agreeable with Scripture canonically, Genesis to Revelation, and it's not the way the church has practiced, say, the first three hundred or five hundred years of its history, then you need to get rid of it. Right. Maybe. See, that's what he says. Maybe because that's the other thing he kind of comes back to with worship. He says any unnecessary changes to the liturgy, if you're just getting rid of it, you are destabilizing people's faith. There ought ought to be as little change as possible. So he's a very, very conservative reformer because he believes the scripture that the Holy Spirit's never left the church. So there needs to be reform, but it needs to be more precision and less decapitation. You want to go for laser surgery and not amputation. That, that's Richard Hooker.
0: And it makes sense because, I mean, generally when you have these things and these practices you have going on in your church, you don't want to just sit there and... Because the sustainability is that sense of importance, where it's like, we have been doing this because it is important. But when you just shift or change so drastically, and it's like, well, this doesn't have importance, where it's like, well, that's where you start, you will have issues with your liturgy. Cause it's like, but well, then why are we actually? Because it goes back to the question well, why are we doing what we're actually doing?
1: Well, it goes to what you said about the 2020 hindsight being 2020. Yeah, he's at the spot where Henry VIII has didn't really change a lot of liturgical reform. Not Henry, Henry was, Henry was a Catholic, he just wanted to do what he wanted. Um, he was Roman, <laughs> I should say. Uh, but you get Henry, you know, because Henry had articles drafted too affirming transubstantiation, affirming priestly celibacy, affirming lots of things that are con- particularly Roman, right? Henry Henry supported all that. But you go from Henry to his son, Edward, who's really you know, he's he becomes a thinker in his own right, but he's 15 when he dies. So Henry's son is basically maneuvered into um, not radical Puritan, but very strong Protestant leaning that then immediately is like whiplash. You go back not just to Henry, but you go back before Henry with his sister Mary, so you go Henry VIII, his son Edward, who's a Protestant, and and Mary is a Catholic par excellence, Roman par excellence. So I mean, she has a new Archbishop installed, who's devoted to the Pope. The Pope grants a full annulment, you know, ab, full absolution. I should say, full absolution to the entire to entirety of the English nation, and but she only reigns five years, and she's the one that kills Cranmer and and Rydmer, um, Latimer, Hugh Latimer, and and Ridley, you know, she she does a lot of that. Uh, But so they go full tilt Roman Catholic again. Well, then when Elizabeth comes to the throne, and she reigns for over 40 years, good Queen Bess, when she comes to the throne, she is too Catholic for some of the Protestants, and she's too Protestant for some of the Catholics. She's trying to keep the nation together because England had its own distinct history because it wasn't part of the continent. And so the English Christianity has its own flavors in it and to She's preserving all that. And so, as we've said, Richard Hooker is writing in her reign. So he's describing, hey, wait a second. We can still have crosses. We can still celebrate Christmas. We can, we can do, you know, something that's extra biblical doesn't mean it's anti-biblical. It's the things that are anti-biblical that we can't do. And so you see, that, you see those things you know, perpetuated and enshrined in the 39, 39 articles, where it says that the church doesn't have the power to command anything contrary to Scripture, which means the church has power to command things that are, uh, that are beyond Scripture if the church deems them necessary. And those are where we get into things like rites and customs and ceremonies. Right. The church does have authority, but it's a derivative authority from the authority of the Bible.
0: Because, and again, the mindset, and we've talked about it before, it, the mindset is for the church is to be the voice of what we see that God is, and it's understanding of how it's exi- how he has existed, and yeah. to repeat that truth. Right. So, especially when you have that, you always constantly remember that mindset, it's not like we're just trying to come up with random stuff to do. It's for the fact that we are seeing what God is, and we are trying to best hold on to that truth and repeat it for the future generations.
1: Right. Like the Bible is not like a planet in space that exerts gravity. If there's no voice that reads it aloud, if there's no interpreter that picks it up and uses it, right? But that voice and that interpreter are subject to its meaning. It is not subject to them. See, that's what Hooker's saying. He's saying, you need a church. The scripture creates a church. You know, hey, pure, hey, radical Puritans. Listen, you don't interpret in a vacuum, and you can't like lob off the members of the body. No, there's a comprehensive whole here, and Richard Hooker's doing a great job with that. Which kind of takes me into the second illustration I want to bring up that is often used for his thought as well. Instead of a three-legged stool, it's a tower. Okay, yeah, a tower. And this that imagery is coming from Christian history, which is based upon the concept of a temple, which is biblical. In the Shepherd of Hermas, Hermas was a prophet in Rome, latter part of the first century into the early second century. Uh, I think he's probably re- uh, related to Clement, the bishop of Rome. That, that's what his thought has been thought for a long time. Uh, Clement, not Clement, Hermas has a vision, and his angel appears as a shepherd. So it's called the Shepherd of Hermas because his angel shows up and gives him all of this instruction. And it was read as scripture in the Bible um, of the Roman church for a couple hundred years. And then they realize, oh, wait, this one's not scripture. We can't use it that way. But he uses, he sees the, this vision of a tower. And the tower goes just straight up. And all the stones and living stones, all the biblical imagery is conveyed here, right? Well, Richard Hooker's thought is really like that. That the Bible is the foundation. You have to build upon the foundation. And you can't go sideways with it. You can't add to it. And you can't take away from it. You have to build on it. And so tradition then and reason are the things that are building up on top of that tower. And if you think about that historically then, when the church goes to build something that they say is scriptural, but it's really not, what they're doing is building on something that's a faulty foundation. They're building on sand, to use the images of Jesus. They're not building on the rock, so it will collapse. And so that, that is a, a very comprehensive picture, even for patristic theology. The church is one, holy, catholic, and apostolic. So if we build in a way that we're not being apostolic, if we build in a way that we're not being one or Catholic or holy, that thing will collapse. That portion of the church will collapse. Reformation is when the the shepherds in the church intentionally are observing what's going on and dealing with things that haven't been dealt with in a while. And Richard Hooker's really synthesizing a lot of these things to say scripture, tradition, and reason. And that's the hierarchy they need to be kept in. And many people will do well to realize that there is tradition, and there is reason, and God gave them both to us. The scripture says, be wise, be shrewd, and the scripture says, keep the traditions that we passed on to you, both written and oral. So we're obeying, and scripture says that the church is the buttress of truth in society, the pillar of truth. So the Bible tells us, it points us to tradition, capital T, and to reason, and to use them both Un- with the new mind, the mind renewed by the Word of God that creates infrastructure, that creates systems, that creates history, that creates culture- cultural-shaping events, we need to obey them.
0: And I agree, because what it does is it just produces logical thought, or yeah. it makes it so it's complete. So, and... The reason why, too, is because tradition makes it so that when there's variance of the culture and there's, as you say, the spirit of the age that starts to swift in, it's because when you actually establish it correctly and you have the observation of who God is and it's repeated, you will have in your tradition these truths that exist. And therefore, when you have the existence of other things that may be declared as truths but not really truly proved, it's just a repetition of even heresies and different things like that, the tradition can fight against it because it is truth itself that's already been realized and already been analyzed, and yeah. it keeps repeating in the culture, and that's what helps us to keep repeating the voice that's been said before, right. and that's how you get to cons- like, consistently have that logical idea and that thought. And then, of course, when you sit there and you use your reason with it, you can go back and you can see how all that's working and all that's done. I think it's, just, I think it's an excellent way to sit there and have consistency. Right, especially in today's war where it seems like so much is drastically changing and so much is, even when you see the advancements of technology and different things like that, but these ideals aren't invalid. They're still true because in order for it to be true, it has to be true through, you know, throughout the ages. And that's why even you have the different practices of everywhere, always, and by all. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at the,
2: the inverse argument of what is happening here and you start looking at it, and I think he, what he's doing, he's speaking to reality. And whether you realize it or not, these are the three things that are influencing you as a Christian church. Right. Uh, whether you, so like even for the Puritans, whether they realize it or not, even though they were rejecting tr- the tradition before, they were creating their own tradition. Right. Um, even if they were rejecting the reason of those around them, they were creating their own reason and using it, and they were interpreting scripture, y- they were using the same three things. You can't it's not really a possibility to not use these three things. Now you might try to throw some other things on there or you might try to, um, redefine reason.
1: Right. That's, that's a big one today. But, but
2: essentially you're using these three things. Everything kind of boils down. I think he did such a great job and that's, you, you can't get away from it. Whether someone wants to accept that these three are true or not, it really, it shows through there. I don't think there's a way to get around it. Um, because even if you deny them, it's still going to be evident, or you're making your own, or it's... These three so, are definitely let, based subset. Yeah,
1: let, let's look at these three things for a second and just use some practical illustrations. Okay. If tradition is made equal or elevated above Scripture, you end up with certain Marian dogmas that Rome has that the East doesn't share. Definitely most Protestants. But just, I'm using tradition, and, and, and I have to say this because in, most American Protestants don't refer to the early church anymore, right? I mean, that they don't oh, talk about yeah. it, right? So I'm using that to to say, if you appeal to to, to tradition in this way, that you make it equal or above Scripture, you end up with emphasizing things that aren't true, like that are contrary to the Bible. And so then, when you've lifted tradition up like that, now you're building all these other subsidiary doctrines off of the tradition and not upon Scripture anymore. So you go into all these other extra-biblical and anti-biblical, contrarian things, that create unnecessary division and distinction in the church, which ought not to be. Reason. This is a big one today. Reason is elevated above Scripture. See, there's a reason—pun intended. There's there's a reason we <laughs> yeah. go scripture, we see scripture, tradition, and then reason, and it's because reason that's not governed by the Word of God is intrinsically fallen. It's part of the carnal world. It's something that Christ has. has, has it's this world that's passing away, as John says. And so, when reason is now elevated above Scripture, or put it this way, it's elevated above tradition, then what begins to happen is people begin to read the Scripture in light of their reason, and within a generation, the, the reason is elevated above the Bible. So now, those passages in the Bible don't apply anymore. We live in a different culture. We live in a different time. They don't understand, you know, it's not the same as it used to be. You know, we're the modern people. We have the Holy Spirit leading us. You fill in the blank for as to why people are thinking it's different, and what they are doing is subjecting the Scriptures to a false concept of reason, as opposed to reason being our minds are transformed by the Word of God, God inspired the Word to be sufficient, He inspired it to be clear, He inspired it to be all that we needed for every culture and generation that would exist. I mean, just to kind of refer back to the episode we did on the journey of Scripture, I mean, the Bible is written over a 1,500-year period, three languages, multiple continents, and it deals with every kind of situation, humanly speaking, that exists. And it's meant to be the rule, the plumb, the arbiter, you know, over all things for all people. It's the Word of God. It's not the words of man. And the words of man have weight, which is something Hooker points out. The words of man have authority. I mean, go speed down the highway recklessly, (laughs) right? We have laws about that, right? And that's kind of what he's saying. He's like, guys, look, there are there are natural law, there are human laws here that forget even the the natural laws. Like, that's the other side of it. Gravity is a law. I don't need the Bible to tell me that gravity exists. There's a whole natural theology that we've got to pay attention to. And we live in a day now where we're using fallen, carnal, demonic in the words of scripture, demonic reasoning to not only go contrary to the revealed word of God, but to go contrary to even the nature that God created. So it does us all really good to go back and look at Richard Hooker's ideas.
0: And I agree, because it's like, it's even like what we talked about before, where it's like, obviously, the breaking down of sciences, even what they are, or even, I'll go back to Aquinas, because why not, uh, <laughs> where it's the observance of what's actually happening there. Right. But it's like, when you have the reason, like, there's a point where it's like, your reasoning, like, you have to actually see what's happening there. And there's different issues today, where like, I just look at statistics of different things that are happening, and how... People will sit there and say it's affirmed or it seems like it's a point of enlightenment. But it's like as the same thing as laws exist when you go against the nature of God, like I could jump off a building and I would die because that's gravity, you know, if it's high enough. Same thing as like these things that we think that are correct if we only use our own reasoning, they're detrimental to our society. And But you can see how different things are happening there with reasoning, especially in today where it's, if it's solely based off what you think is right and not based off of something else, it's not going to stand and it's not going to work.
1: Well, we see this with the uh, the way things are being shaken out across the world, you know, changing what marriage is, changing what gender is, that's not even biologically consistent. But right. Because people are feeling a certain way, so that brings us into subjectivism mm-hmm. entirely. And that that's an outgrowth of something else that's neither uh, scripture tradition or reason, but it, you get this shift much later on where people are tacking on experience. What is your experience? And and that even when it was originally presented, is not what it's become. So now, now we, people use experience to say something like, well, I feel this way, and so because I feel this way, this is how I am, this is who I am, this is how now I think, and the Bible was written by God to me as a personal love letter, so when I read the Bible and I believe <laughs> that this is what it's saying to me, that's what I can go do.
2: Which ends up turning into my truth. Right. I mean, you see that. I mean, I think that was one of the best phrases that summarized that logic as a whole. Yeah. It, it says it all. It says, "Well, this is my truth." It's like, okay, so you don't. You, I'm not know, not to get off on that, but that's what it turns into. Is this is my truth? So the way way that we would hold to the word of God and the tradition of the church as truth, that is what they're essentially saying, and they're not pulling any punches or saying, "Well, um, that's good for you," but this is my truth.
1: Right, so that God's word is not now scripture, neither is God's word made, na- made known in natural revelation, God's word is made known in my feeling. And let me give you an example of that on a very negative way. What did, uh, somebody's not going to like this, but what did Hitler call his book? What was his famous book? They got? Mein Kampf. Which means what? My Struggles. Which is his truth. So when he had his, his struggle and he lived according to his feeling and what he knew to be true, what did it produce? You see what I'm saying? Now, that's, a, that's a, a massive example of something absolutely catastrophic and horrible, but the principle by which that operated, so that he was able to read Luther, able to read Scripture, able to read philosophers, able to read the natural world— you know, biology and Arianism, all that stuff. He was, he was a super, the, the race and the Third Reich, time itself. All of that spilling out of this depraved hole on the inside that is principally what's happening when people say, well, I know the Bible says I ought not to divorce my spouse, but I feel. And so they end up divorcing their spouse for no reason and their kids are all torn up and don't know what to do about it. What, what do you do? It's this principally the same fallen flesh at work. It's just the scope of impact is different and what it's able to do, right? Anyway.
0: I mean, you can definitely see how almost it's like not following these ideas. Is, it leads to degradation of a culture. It leads to degradation of a nation.
1: Yeah, and, and this is where, you know, Richard Hooker's thought is great because the man saying, here's what the Bible says, here's what Christian history has said, and here's what we understand to be the truth of God that's observable in the world around us. So let's understand all things in light of the divine inspiration Because we don't live by reason, we live by the Word of God. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we live by what God has said in the Word, and then we understand that that Word is telling us, teaching us to look at the natural world, not as something contrary to Scripture, because grace perfects nature, it heals nature, it doesn't contradict it. And then that's where we see reasoning help us. Like Like I mentioned speeding, the Bible doesn't tell us how fast speed limits should be.
0: It has to be in there somewhere. It's got to be. I'll look through it again. I'll I'll show it to you. I'll I'll double check your
1: work. Oh.
0: (laughs) No, I'm I'm kidding. I'm
1: But again, I use that example because, you know, Hooker talks to things about like, it's it's often said, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us how to build roads. So how do we know how to build roads? Reason. Natural law. Those are good things. So, you know, it helps us. Like, we believe that the Bible is the word of God and that all of the things that are true empirically, like, they're true. Anyway we could keep going about him a good bit but i think this is a good
0: it's a it's i think it's good cuz like if people kind of want to get more of an understanding of like uh, i'm trying to think of a better way to say it, like building your logic within the church like at least like when you exist as a christian or angle, what anything really like as you exist like how do you do what you do or like why do you know what you believe or right I have to know what you believe. Well, this is what Anglicanism is
1: supposed it. to be. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you meant you were getting ready to touch on it there. But yeah, the, what is the Anglican contribution to the whole church? Like, what what is it? And Hooker's uh, thought, his theology, is as influential in Anglicanism as the King James Bible is. For those people who don't know, the King James Bible is like, I mean, Anglican King James was the head of, the, you know, he's the, the king of England. <laughs> you know, uh, the whole sixteen eleven. So, Hooker's contribution is on par with that, not because he wrote a Bible, but because the way that he explained theology became the bedrock for a long time for Anglican thought. Like, here's how we process the world. We are, lowercase r, Reformed, capital C, Catholics. So, we're not Roman, because Rome refers to that specific tradition and place and people, but we are Catholic. The Church of England, the Anglican Communion, is so thoroughly Catholic, and the canons of 1604, which King James, by the way, happens to convene that, that synod, I, canon three, its one of the first canons of the, the rules they make in this canon. If anyone says that the Church of England is not a Catholic church, that it's not part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, they are ipso facto excommunicated. That, that's, that's the gravity here. So... This is the Catholic Church with an English, Anglican, Anglo-Saxon, Welsh, Celtic history, all that stuff, under the authority of the Bible. What does that look like then? So instead of having a pope, or instead of having a council, or a series of councils, that tell us what to do, we say, it's the Bible. How do we understand it? Enter Richard Hooker, who says, the Word of God. And how has that word been understood by the church through history, through tradition? And how do we understand the word that word through tradition to be applied to where we live today? It's genius, and if we could recapture that, we would still have disagreements with our Roman and our Orthodox brothers and sisters, but we wouldn't have the kind of disagreements that we do now.
0: Yeah.
2: Go yeah. Forth. So that being said, um, you start looking at some modifications to that, and I think what I think is probably. The best application, like the closest thing to a middle ground that we have for this, for those who are actually seeking to be part of the true church, and that's the Westland quadrilateral, um, in which essentially experience is added on to the three-legged stool. So now I guess it's a four-legged stool. I don't <laughs> know. I don't know where they run with that. But
1: four-wheeled car.
2: There we go. Uh, <laughs> oh my! <I> don't know. <laughs> but you, you, they kind of end up splitting reason, kind of take a little sliver off of reason, and then blow it up. And I, I think a lot of that is what gets in the way of, tr- of coming back to the, this quadrilateral gets in the way of coming back to the three-legged stool. Yeah, so that- Wesley,
1: Wesley is clearly an Anglican. He's an Anglican priest, mm-hmm. phenomenal uh, preacher, organizer, whatnot. Wesley doesn't set out to change this, but when you read his sermons, he, he will appeal to personal experience while he's preaching to the people. What does your experience tell you? So what he's trying, what he's doing, is he's saying, well, you know the Scripture's been, because he's speaking to Christendom, he's speaking to Christianized people. So he's saying, you know what the Scripture says, because you've been catechized, or at least to an extent. You know what the church has been saying, because you know about the established church, you know, tradition and reason and whatnot. Well, then he'll throw out there, what does your experience tell you? I.e., you know that in your heart you're not obeying this. So he uses that as a means to call them into a more, you know, pious uh, devotion that's what he's doing you jump forward when people actually add that on well before that happens that that i mentioned how in in a lot of ways you know reason a fallen sense of reason is overtaking the authority of scripture well this fallen sense of experience is overtaking the whole thing you know in the wesleyan circles the methodist circles the the pentecostal circles that are coming out of that same vein experience in the spirit quote quote is now triumphing scripture well, the Holy Spirit told me. I know the Bible says this, but the Holy Spirit told me. And then you end up with revivalism. People are chasing one experience after another mm. because they believe that's God. And so they'll do things that are illogical. They'll do things that are not reasonably connected under, under the authority of Scripture. They'll do things that are not wise, but they believe that because they have faith, God will honor it. So they've built a, th- a theology of faith in faith and not faith in the Word of God. So you end up with this whole catastrophic spillover, but in the midst of that spillover is legitimate enthusiasm. It's real enthusiasm and some real faith. So because you see a handful of miracles, you believe that God's in the middle of that whole thing, and he's not. How do you know he's not? Because it doesn't last a generation. It doesn't make it. That goes back to that whole image of the tower. It's not really an apostolic thing that's being perpetuated, although it might look like it and sound like it for a little while. So we got to be careful that we I, I mean, I don't maybe careful yes. I'll put it this way for careful. I would not advocate the quadrilateral. Because the fact that you're engaging with those three legs on that stool, if you're sitting on the chair, there's your experience. Mm-hmm. So if you're gonna go quadrilateral, I would I would say, look, look, you your experience is the fact that you're interacting with these. Don't add experience as a component that you have to measure to verify those things. Your experience needs to conform to them, which is Wesley's point, not what comes on after him.
2: Well, and and even kind of the the point I was making at the beginning was it's like they took a sliver off of reason and then they blew it up. And really, I mean, part of reasoning is using your five senses, There's like especially when we're looking at natural theology. Uh, you can use your five senses. For example, um, how do I know that the sexual depravity that has grasped our culture today is not good? I can observe the, the negative side effects against the flesh. Or, or you start looking at other things that you know are, are, are true. How do you experience them? Like you, you, it, with your five senses, and that's really experience, but that's also very much a part of reason. So I don't think you can really split them off from each other as much and then and and use them separately
1: but that's why we need all of experience all the natural law to be governed by the word of god in scripture
0: i think so also i know you're telling me that woodstock maybe wasn't that great of an event because (laughs) of all the unplanned pregnancies I, due to the sexual revolution.
2: <laughs> well, I, I think what Woodstock, they ended up with a uh, like plus one because babies were born there, and it over, like it, babies were born. People died, but it ended up in the positive, so it was all good. Somehow. Evidently, But that's uh, okay, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: my goodness! So we actually have some pretty good listeners' questions. All right. This week. All right. I forgot to ask him if I could say his name. I think we said his
1: name before. Well, we've got two different sets of people that we know of, right? These are from two different people. You got one, right, from somebody I, else? I do have one. We'll just leave them on name today. They'll know who their questions are. Let's okay. do that.
0: I emailed him back, and I told him we would. Oh, you did? I did. And he said okay? Well, he didn't respond to my email. Yeah, let's not I say it. was like late last night.
1: Yeah, let's not Let's not go for his response yet. So <laughs> He's probably at a worship conference or something.
0: So, and they're pretty interesting, even what we have, what we were talking about even this week. Okay. Um, so, his question goes as in light of all these heresies, a question has arisen in my heart.
1: The heresies of previous weeks. Yes. Okay.
0: Uh, what is an Anglican version, vision? My goodness. What is an Anglican vision of revival slash awakening?
1: I think an Anglican vision of revival slash awakening, one of the best examples is the first great awakening. George Whitfield. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, were all Anglican priests. They were all devoted to the use of the Book of Common Prayer. They all made uh, use of, even, uh, when, I, when I say use of it, I mean the liturgies. Wesley was at the Eucharist five out of seven days a week his entire life. The early church fathers were part of their regular devotions. They were called Methodists because they were methodological. They preached an evangelical gospel, and they saw signs and wonders that would make every, any contemporary charismatic jealous. So, if you want like a, a glimpse of Anglican revival and awakening, the First Great Awakening is the best. Strong biblical preaching, strong call to repentance, strong press for evangelization, and because it's Anglican, it's retaining the Catholic form. So, if you're a lay preacher and you're sent out to do preaching, you go preach, but then you insist that the people be at the priest for baptism, for the Eucharist, for absolution, um, we also see in that awakening and that revival, the formation of small groups, a restoration of that practice for people to stay accountable with one another, praying together, the singing of the Psalms. In, in one account, uh, one event, Wesley is actually being drugged through the streets to the, to, we'll say the police, all, the police headquarters, you know, a different name for it, but he's being drugged there. He gets there and the officer says, why have you brought this man to me? Because the mob is furious. And they kind of hem and haw, and they eventually they get around to saying, because he makes people get up at 5 a.m. and sing the Psalms.
0: <laughs> I love that.
1: Yeah. So if you, I mean, if you're, if, if we're looking like, what is an Anglican view of that? Well, there you go. That's perfect. When you're talking about global missions, if my, if the numbers haven't changed too much, I think there's somewhere around like 80 to 90 million Anglicans globally, it's the third largest communion. Now, there's a big jump there, you know. You've got 1.3 billion Roman Catholics, and you've got 900 million Orthodox, and you've got 90 million Anglicans. So there's a, there's a, there's a big difference there. But it's the third largest communion, um, and 80% of them, 80% of us are Charismatics. There are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are people, essentially, in Australia. So the average Anglican person on the planet right now is a 22-year-old Nigerian woman.
0: <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very... It's that's awesome. cool. That's interesting. It's
1: very biblical, very missional, like in the sense of missionary work, uh, very gospel preaching. I mean, that, that's what it is. And it's in the power of the spirit. You know, the charisms are going to vary. emphases are going to vary. I mean, you've got, you got a lot of variation within the Anglican world that you don't have, and say the Roman or the Orthodox, uh, and and you've got a lot more form and and ceremony than you do in the other Protestant bodies, because again, it's that middle way. So you you that's that's I would refer people back to the First Great Awakening, and look at the the effect of that. You know,
2: and and I think I would add a caveat to that, and that's really the culture changing principle of it, right? Of even what happening what happened, because uh, when you see um, historically the Anglicanism, it's, it's very much so. It, cha- it attaches to the culture, and it changes the culture that is around it.
1: Yeah, that, that goes right back to the beginning. So you get the early, the first set of churches in England are in the first century, and you end up with this Roman-British Christianity that exists till the fall of Rome in 410. You know, and you've got, so the first few hundred years there, you've got this Roman-British church, and then you get this Celtic church with St. Patrick in the, in the late 300s. You got all that going on. Rome falls, they're not even sure there's a church there anymore, right? So uh, Rome sends some missionaries in about 600, close to 600 AD. So you get this Celtic, British, Roman mesh coming together in about the year 600 or so. And um, Gregory the Great writes a letter to Augustine, the guy that's leading that mission, and he says, take from the various liturgies and put together something that's adaptable to the people that you're ministering to. So if you get a copy of the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, right in the beginning, our archbishops point that out to say the liturgy is me- it, it needs to be, there's, to an extent, okay, this is not like you just change it, but there is an extent to which the liturgy is pliable to help people draw nearer to God, not the other way around. How do you do it? And so when you see Anglicanism globally as part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, whether it's you know, Nigeria, Uganda, wherever, um, you see that principle of, of, of flexibility still within the Catholic forms and doctrine. Uh, mm-hmm. Awakening, here's another one he may want to look up. Uh, the East African Revival. Look at the influence of the Anglican Church in the East African Revival, you know, that was just a little over 100 years ago. I mean, incredible. Very strong Anglican presence in that. Because I would, and even to jump on, I would
0: say that, a lot of what you see happening in these revivals and we're just again talking about hooker so what you see is just the fact that the seeking of truth yeah. especially in a lot of that and even i'll because here's the thing like a revival has to happen because it's there's a point in which the church becomes stagnant or they're not really facing those truths right and even i'll quote from hooker here it's a bit of a, a little lengthy of a quote go for it but i think i think it's really relevant. Uh, he says, seeking knowledge is rather painful, and this is why the will is so re- often so reluctant to pursue it. This is the result of the curse by which our souls, faculties of reason, have been so weakened that they prefer to rest in ignorance rather than taking the trouble to find out the truth. We need some incentive to seek out the truth, which is why we have nat- a natural thirst for knowledge planted within us. But that original weakness in our faculties, which afflicts our every attempt to reason, makes us hesitate at the slightest sign of toil. This is why the apostle, knowing that the weariness of the flesh so often stands in the way of the will, harps on this theme. Awake thou that sleepest, lay aside every weight, watch ye, see, strive to enter in by the narrow door. And the whole point of that is, and the reason why I'm saying all that is to say this, is because the need for revival is that point where there is that sleeping falling, like falling away. Right. Or you're not doing that. And he kind of gives more of that reason of like why that's even happening. But definitely what you see as a sign of these awakenings and these revivals is that chance to say, to say, go back to the scripture, find the truths. And again, as obviously this is all in the same episode, when you find that logic of the 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 three-laying stool it all works in and it applies in the same way. So
1: he I mean he, the will is depraved. So you want to know but you're too lazy to do it, you know. That what is biblical preaching then? But the call to repent and the proclamation of the 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 information of the gospel in such a way that it provokes and wakes up the will that doesn't want to move. That's that's characteristic of Anglican preaching. It is the the Catholic church under scripture. So it's the scripture preached, the scripture taught the scripture of catechized, the scripture declared, the scripture prayed. Huge em- emphasis, charismatic, uh, huge characteristic emphasis of awakening and revival within an Anglican uh, context. Something I did mention that I probably should Anglicanism, because of its uh, connection to monarchy and the early Christian history, very often, very often has strong connections with local government. And it's always working to lead government systems. Under the authority of Scripture, whether that was the monarchy, you know, in, in England or on these other places around the world, where it's still common. I mean, there was a new Archbishop in Sydney that was just elected last week, and um, some pretty high-level leaders, civil, civil governmental leaders, were at that meeting. That's part of the church, you know. I mean, that's uh, what our, our very often, you know, our, our priests, our clergy, are invited to open up sessions of Congress, uh, you know, whether that's national, local. Uh, we, one of our bishops up in New England was addressing the United Nations, you know, last year. I mean, so it's, it's not just the quickening of piety and of, of holiness, but it's also the emphasis of systems and structures that exist around the planet to care for the poor, to help the weak, to help the disenfranchised. You know, I know that while there are some things that we would have difficulty with, with, with some of these, It is good to see with some of these folks what's going on in the Church of England specifically, doctrinally, it's just sad to see. But it is a gospel effect that they're trying to provide housing for the homeless. So you get all of these aspects of the kingdom that are coming to bear in Anglican revival. Uh, Let me put it this way, Caleb. The First Great Awakening through those Anglican priests and prophets, preachers, and there, there are other ones. I'm not discounting the the others that were part of that. But that was a very Anglican route to a lot of that. Um, That begins laying the the groundwork for abolition. It's in 1775. I mean, it's it's, it's a couple decades after the First Great Awakening. Those fires start cooling in 1740. So the people that are still riding that wave are the ones who start freeing their slaves and calling for the end of slavery. 1775, that's not 1776 yet, right? So that's already starting as an effect of that preaching. So you you get you get transformation in a culture usually after the awakening itself. It's the effect of what's taking place.
0: And I'd even say it's even also what Hooker was saying, what he basically talks about whenever God enacts upon something, it becomes good. Like it it is better than what it is. Right. Always, whenever he's and you'll see that happen within the culture, especially during these times of awakening. And it's crazy to see how, like, a lot of people want to sit there and say, of negatives, the influence of the church has had on the culture. Well, we kind of already defined what do we see as the church, even in maybe different parts. There may be a church that's causing right. bad things to happen. But rarely do you ever see, especially in our culture, like the positives of.
1: Yeah, nobody talks about hospitals. That was the yeah. church. Nobody talks about orphanages. That was the church. Nobody talks about education for everybody. Mm -hmm. That's the church. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Um, Yes, were were there Southern uh, slave owners who used the Bible to justify their position? Yes. But there were Northern abolitionists who said, no, the scripture says you shouldn't do this. And that is the more resonant historical teaching amongst Christians anyway. Right. That you couldn't do that. Go all the way back to Philemon. Hey, you ought to set this guy free if you can. Right. So, I mean, you've got, I don't want to get into slavery per se, but right. you've got this whole spectrum of social change. It's radically coming through the church. It's wonderful, but it gets overlooked because it doesn't fit with the spirit of the age today, which wants to turn license to sin into godliness, and they're not the same.
0: But I think that what it, I think that answers the question of like what it looks like for Anglicanism. Like I hope when, so. <laughs> I, I think it definitely does. Like <laughs> um, his other question was, uh, and he's like, this is a less exciting question. Okay. So, All right. What is Episcopal, what is Anglican, and where do these words come from? Okay. And he has more on to it, but I mean... I, I well, let's we'll
1: do that first, yeah. Episcopal comes from the Greek word episkopos, meaning bishop. So Episcopal is a term that's used to mean that a church is governed by bishops. Okay. Okay? So Roman Catholicism is episcopal. The Orthodox is episcopal. Anglicans are episcopal. Some Pentecostal groups are episcopal. Just means they're under the authority of bishops. And then there's a, differentia- a differentiation there. When they say bishop, do they mean an elected official that they call bishop, or do they mean a bishop who through the laying on of hands goes back to the apostles themselves? Okay. In denominational lingo, the Episcopal Church is a reference to the Anglicans in the colonies that became the United States, and the name that they have gone by since the 1700s, 1800s, late 17, 1787. And the 1700s was the formation of the Episcopal Church as a distinct body from the Church of England and the Church of Ireland. And the Episcopal Church was the Anglican presence in the United States up until, oh, I want to say late 1800s, it started to kind of like break into pieces, you know. Not a lot, but it started to divide. Um, then again, in the middle of the 20th century, in the 1970s, it broke into a couple other smaller groups. And at this, when this really starts happening, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, it's because they're making innovations and changes to doctrine. They're violating what we've just talked about with Richard Hooker. They're taking reason and using it to deny tradition while maintaining others and then denying scripture or reinterpreting scripture so that the difference now, if someone says they're Anglican, Usually what they're saying is, in the United States, we are part of the same common historical root, but our fellowship is with the World Anglican GAFCON is the, the acronym, but the World Anglican Bodies, the World Anglican Communion. So I mentioned Nigeria, like Nigeria, Uganda, so many of the World Anglican provinces is what we call them. Sometimes they're, the province is a nation, sometimes it's a couple nations. And there's 40 or so, uh, 40, 41 provinces, I think. Um, the global provinces, by and large, broke their fellowship, either through impaired communion or, or I don't know if they've used the word excommunication, but they've, they've broken all ties with the Episcopal Church as of about 2008, 2006 even, when the Episcopal Church ordained a man who was an active homosexual, even though they said they would not, the many of the global Anglican provinces said, you have 60 days to repent. And they didn't do it. So this is the difference between, uh, let me finish this This here. So what happened then is you had a whole group of Episcopalians, Anglicans, Episcopalians in the United States, who came under the authority of these bishops in other places for a couple of years, until those bishops there said to the, to the guys here in the United States, reorganize as a separate province and we'll recognize you. So if somebody were to ask me, are you Episcopal? Well, what do you mean? Do, do you mean, do I have a bishop? Yes. But do you, are you asking me if I'm part of the Episcopal Church? No. Are you an Anglican? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, it, because what we're trying, what we want to see is Richard Hooker. We want to see Anglicanism as it has historically been understood, be that which is per, uh, maintained as part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church which means the primacy, the, the, the authority of the Bible, and that we can't change it. We don't have the authority to change the Scripture. That's one of the big differences there. Um, I'll say it this way. If Roman Catholicism is a boat, and the captain of the boat is the Pope, Anglicanism is more like the Eastern Orthodox. We're not a boat, we're an armada. We're a fleet of ships. And each ship has its own captain, its own archbishop, but we sail together. So if the gl- when the global primates, the top, top leaders, when they all get together, global, global primates, when they get together, they make a decision. The idea is that you sail together. There's nobody that's going to make you do it. But Christian charity says that you should. It goes back to the whole idea of the councils that we talked about a few weeks ago. So I I hope that helps.
0: I think that I think that definitely answers the question. Right. I would say builds upon. So, and even then, like going back through previous episodes, you can kind of piece more together, especially yeah. when you look at apostolic tradition and everything like right. that as well, right. to kind of get understanding what it is for to be kind of Anglican.
1: Right. Right. We're not rejecting the people in the Episcopal Church, by the way. I mean, we're not saying that. I mean, there are some teachings and there's there's bishops they have that are apostate and they're blasphemous. I mean,
0: but everybody's got some of those, you know I well mean, they, ha-
1: they have an exorbitant <laughs> number of them. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, they advocate for things that are I mean you know, so they'll stand for some things that are positive, but then they'll stand for a bunch of other things and scripture condemns like, so emphatically it's like why how, what gymnastics in your brain are anyway I, that, I don't want to sound derogatory. Um, I say that because there are people in the Episcopal church that love the Lord, and there are some clergy that are, and they they believe I mean there's a few of them they believe that God will fix these problems in the Episcopal Church. It just may take 100 years, so they don't feel like they ought to go. Well, maybe the Lord will. I hope he revives all the people that call upon his name. And then there are those, um, like our bishop who was an Episcopal priest, who then was made a bishop by the Church of Uganda. So he was a Ugandan missionary bishop here until the ACNA formed, and now he's he's our bishop here in the Mid-Atlantic. And then you have a lot of the people like myself. So the majority... I won't say the majority, a lot, like it is the majority of clergy, new clergy in the past five, six years, have had no background in the Episcopal Church. We all came from somewhere else. You know, like I was a Pentecostal pastor for a long time, and then the Lord redirected me into the historic church like this. And, you know, if you had told folks 10 years ago, this is what I'd be doing, they thought you were crazy.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's good. Okay. I think even for some of it, yeah. It's just crazy. I, I, just, I just thought it was funny because like even when you see different things happen within the Episcopal Church, it's almost like if they again would just follow what even Hooker was talking about. Right. It's like they're just ripping off one of the legs of the stool and they're trying to sit on it and they're wondering why it's falling down. But uh, yeah.
1: Well, for many of them, so here, here's, here's something, for many of them, they believe that's the Holy Spirit leading them to be on the prophetic margins, to call the church to be more updated and relevant.
0: Well, I think that about wraps it up for this week. I think we got a lot of information in here and it's apply again the the same thing as we try to do apply these different concepts as you see the world around you today and you'll start to find and start to see how everything is coming together and also if you have that under fear or worry of like am I believing what's correct this is these are the proper steps to take in order to have be informed and have a logical reasoning of why you believe what you believe
1: yeah yeah thanks for listening I hope I hope this is helpful for people yeah yeah
0: so Well, I guess we'll see you all next week. Goodbye.